Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, very first page in your Bibles. We want everybody to be able to follow along, so these brothers have some Bibles as they make their way to the back, get their attention, and they'll get a Bible to you so that you can follow along as we look at the opening chapters of God's Word. I read a book several years ago with the title, All I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. The book lists 16 things learned early in life which, if followed, will help you in every stage of your journey. The author reminds us, all of us, what we learned in kindergarten. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and drink some and draw some and paint some and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup. The roots go down and the plant goes up and nobody really knows how or why, but we are all like that. Goldfish and hamsters and white mice and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup. They all die. So do we. And then, last but not least, remember the Dick and Jane books. And the first word you learned, and the biggest word of all, look. Now, for me at least, it's comforting to consider that all of the information with which we are confronted on a regular basis. And in our day, more frequently than at any other time in history... It's comforting for me to know that with all of that, life still comes down to a relatively few basic truths. And personally, I think that list is a pretty good one to live by, except that something, no, really someone, is actually missing. When reminding us of the little seed in that styrofoam cup where the roots go down and the plant goes up, the author says, quote, nobody really knows how or why. But we do know why. We know it's because the Creator made it that way. And when the last item says the most important thing we learned is the need to look, we need also to be reminded how we look at something depends on how good our eyesight is. Because, friends, it's possible to look and not to see clearly. And that's why the Bible, at its very beginning in its opening chapters, gives us just a few profoundly important things to know. And these few provide the filter through which we look at everything else. They constitute the way we look at the world and what is often called a world view. And last week we saw that a worldview is a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality. It is a framework through which one makes sense of the data of life and the world. 
And we began last week reviewing the biblical worldview that's found in the first few chapters of the Bible because for six months of last year, I presented messages from Genesis chapters 1 through 6. Then we took a six-month break, but now we're picking up where we left off. Next week, we're going to begin in chapter 6 and verse 9, and we'll continue our series, the title of which is Our Problems, God's Promises. But today, we finish our review of the handful of things that were taught at the very beginning of the Bible, things that are foundational to the rest of the Bible's story and, in fact, foundational to our entire lives. So let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, thank you again for another Lord's Day and the opportunity to gather and to have the privilege of having in our hands your word, to be able to open it, to be able to be instructed regarding who you are, who we are, your purpose for placing us here, and how best to go about fulfilling that purpose. We ask your blessing then upon this time as we look at your word. Open our hearts and clear our minds so that we may glean what you have for us and apply it to our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, there is an outline that's inserted in your program, the program that you should have received on the way in. If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to take that out. And you're going to see that the first of the three major points in that outline is already filled in. And the reason for that is, if you were here with us last week, you know that we covered that first major point, which is that in a biblical worldview from the opening pages of Scripture, the first thing we learn is it's about God. It's about God. In fact, from the very first line, chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God. And then as we see God's activity in creating, we learn that God is great. We say that in your outline and saw that last week. And we saw that his greatness is seen in things like his self-existence and his self-sufficiency, his self-centeredness, I called it. That is, that he does all things for his own glory, his omnipotence, that he can do all things that are consistent with his character and his sovereignty. He has full authority over all that he has made. We saw that it's about God and God is great, but as we say in your outline and saw last week, he's also good. In his work of creation, he shows his goodness in that he's focused on his creatures. Though the earth is not the center of the universe, it is the center of God's attention. And God provides for his creation. He protects his creation. Now, if you were not here last week as we went through all of that and more, then you can listen to last week's message and all of our messages on our website. I encourage you to do that. But first, the first thing to understand about a biblical view of the world from the opening chapters of the Bible is it's about God. But then secondly in your outline, it's about God and it involves us. It's about God and it involves us. That is, we are the major players in God's world, aside from God himself, of course. Among all of God's creatures, humanity has a unique and special role. And that unique and special role that's assigned to us means, as I say in the outline, that we are privileged. What life is all about involves us, and we are privileged among God's creatures. Chapter 1 of the Bible and verse 26 says this, Then God said, 
Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's an assignment. It's only given to humanity. On the sixth day of God's creative activity, he achieved his crowning creation, that of the first man and, and woman. And he gave them this lofty assignment. Humanity, among all of God's creatures, is privileged and made differently. Designed differently than the rest of creation. Because mankind alone is made in the image of God. Because of this marvelous design and this role that has been assigned to us, the psalmist could say in Psalm 139, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We're made to reflect God's character as his image bearers back to him. And God's, in fact, objective in delivering us from, from sin to create a relationship, restore a relationship with him that we were designed to have. His objective in that is that, according to your New Testament, that we be conformed to the image of his son. We were made to reflect God's image back to him and God remakes us to do that very thing. Because of this uniqueness, because of this privileged status that humanity has. It means that humanity is able to relate to God as no other creature. Because we're made in his image, we are able to relate to him. Being made in his image means we're able to resemble him morally and personally. We are persons as he is a person with the faculties of mind and will and emotion. And that's why it's only humanity among God's creation with whom he can communicate personally, person to person. And that's why in verse 28 it says, And he said to them. The other portions of Scripture where it talks about what he instructed the birds of the air to do, it's simply telling us something about them. But in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, God speaks directly to them. He said to them. Humanity alone then can relate to to God as persons and humanity is able to relate to humanity. We were made male and female and we were made not to be alone and with the ability to relate to one another. Now, there are many, many, many applications of this. I'm just trying to show you how you have to filter everything through a biblical worldview last week and today. And I just as I go then want to give you some applications of these marvelous truths one of these is this the image that all humanity bears the image of god that all humanity has eliminates racism and sexism did you know that because every human being is made in the image of god no matter his or her race no matter their ethnicity in fact, the Bible tells us, as the great apostle Paul stood before philosophers in Athens, Greece, he said to them, from one man he made, he made all. So we are all related. 
We have all come from the same pair of human parents. We are all related and we are, we are blood relatives. And this idea of being made in the image of God, according to Genesis 1, eliminates sexism as well. I've taught you before because the Bible teaches that our identity comes not first from our roles, but rather from our relationship with God and the fact that we all equally, male and female, reflect the image of God. And then God assigns us our roles. Our identity comes from the fact that we are equally made in God's image. And that's why the Bible can say there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And man alone then, with this ability and this privileged standing, has the ability to hear from God and to speak back to God, to engage in communication that's foundational to relationship. This communication ability that we're given is not first for the purpose of me telling you what you can do for me or for me telling you how you failed me. But it is the means by which I get to know you and therefore how best I can love you. And that's exactly why God gave us that ability to learn of him and learn to love him, to be able to receive his communication and to be able to communicate back. We were made to receive revelation from God made with the ability to hear his voice so it says he said to them we were made to be able to interpret his world and discover it and to subdue it and all of this for the purpose of worshiping and loving our creator in verse 28 when God said to them and then by extension says to us I want you to fill the earth and I want you to subdue it That's what many have called, rightly, the dominion mandate. That there was a mandate given to humanity, to mankind, to have dominion over the world that God has made and to rule it on behalf of God. We have, of course, as we're going to see, failed in that mandate. But it is a continuing mandate that God has given to humanity. So mankind alone is made with these abilities to relate and thus to communicate, to reflect God back to God, designed by God as the crowning achievement of his creation. Now, we have about a six minute video clip that I want us to watch together that reminds us of how marvelous God has made humanity among creation. While all creation reflects aspects of God's character, man alone was created in God's image. Man has physical distinctions. His brain is a masterpiece of complexity. His hands are able to accomplish precise work. His posture is upright. Yet, it is man's spiritual nature that is especially unique. Scripture explains that God is spirit. And even though mankind has fallen into sin, Man's spiritual nature still retains a glimmer of the Creator's character. For example, man has a free will. Man knows the difference between good and evil. And only mankind has produced great scientists, composers, prophets, and poets. Mankind has been engineered with brilliant physical traits. 
For example, the human eye moves about 100,000 times each day with automatic focusing and can handle 1.5 million simultaneous messages. The eye is also self-cleaning with built-in wipers and cleaning fluid. And the eye even has the amazing ability to assemble and heal itself. Furthermore, God has designed the human eye to distinguish millions of colors and his mind to appreciate the rich spectrum of beauty seen throughout creation. Most people don't realize this, but the eye is part of the brain. It's an extension of bud in the embryo that buds off the brain. And there's a little window that develops in the skin called the cornea of the eye. Isn't that great? The eyeball is located precisely where a clear window develops in the skin, so we may look through. It's sensitive to light over a range of about 10 billion to 1. That is from the brightest uh, thing we can see, maybe a sun-drenched snowscape, uh, down to as little as a single photon of light. That's our smallest unit of light. And of course, everywhere you look, the focus is automatic. And the two eyes look at the same spot wherever we look. Uh, it's like somebody with a pair of six guns that can fire the guns, and everywhere they shoot, the two bullets make one hole instantly everywhere and that's what our eyes are doing everywhere we look they converge in the same point if they were off by just a degree or so you'd see double everywhere i look i see overwhelming evidence of the handiwork of god and surely when man denies that he's without excuse just as romans chapter 1 verse 20 tells us even more mind-boggling the lord has designed all man's senses to be intimately integrated when we see food, our stomachs may growl and our mouths salivate. Upon hearing the voice of an old friend, our hearts may leap for joy. And one smell of grandma's cooking can invoke memories from years past. However, the wonder of our physical sophistication pales in comparison to our spiritual nature. Man is self-conscious and able to contemplate himself. Man was created a rational being, endowed with the faculty of reason and the ability to learn. Man was given the capacity to retain past experiences, and his memory makes it possible for him to reflect on the goodness of God. According to the Genesis record, man was made in the image of God. That means he had attributes, abilities, capacities that God had given him. When we read the Genesis 4 record, which is after the fall, we still see these abilities and capacities. For example, man could build cities. He could make and play musical instruments. He understood metallurgy. He understood agriculture. He could write poetry and literature. As well, man was created with a spiritual component. Man had a free will to choose, had a conscience. So we see God created man unique from the rest of the creation. There are many differences between mankind and animals. One verse that comes to mind is over in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. It's the verse that says, we are special, that God has put eternity in our hearts. That is, we have a concept of history of the past and present and future. This is different from animals that live for today. We are a special creation. Another wonderful gift of the Creator to man is emotion. It gives him color and richness, feeling, and the capacity for joy and laughter.
Only man of all creatures on earth can appreciate an inspiring symphony or rejoice in the beauty of a sunset. And man alone is a free moral agent, responsible to God and to society. The only explanation to account for morality in man is the fact revealed in the scriptures, namely, that man was created in the image of God, and therefore made, like God, a moral being. Chapter 2 and verse 4 of Genesis tells us more about this privileged status that God has given to mankind. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And I want you to notice the name of God that's used there, Lord God. God's goodness and his relational qualities are underscored by the use of that name, Yahweh Elohim. It's used 20 times in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 and only one other time in the rest of the first five books of your, of your Bible. Now, why does it use that particular name in those chapters? It's to move from the transcendent God who is above his creation in chapter 1 to the eminent relational God of chapters 2 and 3. This privileged status that mankind has means that God has made us to relate to him with the ability to do so, and he himself condescends to relate to mankind. So he puts us on earth as a place of relationship and as a place of significance. That verse, verse 4. The last phrase says, the Lord, made, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And I noted last week that if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but now God is going to focus his attention exclusively upon earth. And so the order is reversed. It's the earth and the heavens. And it's a very good earth where God has put these highest of his creatures. The last verse of chapter 1 says, God looked over all that he had made and it was very good. Friends, all kinds of applications of this. But one is this. Your dignity as a human being comes from the fact that you are a product of the creator God. It is not bestowed upon you by government or anyone else. That we are all endowed by our creator with life, with certain inalienable rights among these life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Where did that come from? From a biblical view of the world. God puts us in a place of relationship and on the earth as a place of significance. And he gives it to us as a place of enjoyment. In verse 5 and in verses 10 through 14 of chapter 2. The Bible tells us that God watered the place where he put man so that vegetation could grow and so that mankind could enjoy God's creation. God puts us in a good place and then he puts us in a good position, a position that is under his loving rule. Verse seven of chapter two, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And when it says in that verse, the Lord formed a man, and it speaks of man a couple of times in that verse. It's the Hebrew word uh, aduma, and we get the name of the first male from that, Adam. It means ground, (laughs) dirt. And so 
Man has gone from the lofty heights of chapter 1 and verse 26, made in the image of God, to the lowly dust of the ground. Now, that might seem demeaning, but what it means is we are placed in this privileged position, but under Almighty God, under the Creator. He is the one who formed us and and molded us as a potter molds clay. And that's why the, the prophets would often use that imagery. The prophet Isaiah said, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? You did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? And the prophet Jeremiah, likewise, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you, says God, in my hand. How do you feel about being in the hand of the potter? That's actually the very best place for us to be. A good God puts us in a good position under him, and he puts us in a position to live under him and to live with him. Verse 7 says he breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living being. That is a living soul. And that breath of life, like the image of God in man, distinguished him from animals. He has an immaterial now part of him. We, unlike animals, are both material and immaterial. We are both physical and spiritual. Everything else is matter. That means, among many things... That your brain, the way you think, is not, is not only a matter of neurons firing or misfiring. It's not just the gray matter. We are not materialists so that we believe that everything is, is physical, but rather it is a combination of both physical and, and immaterial. And when these distinctive elements of humanity, the image of God and the spirit that God breathed into man, when those are missing and when those are marred, humanity can descend to animal-like behavior and even worship animals. And so, friends, you see man's inhumanity to man. You've heard that phrase before. But the reason you see that is because people have forgotten the privileged position that they have, and they've disregarded the fact that they have this spiritual component that separates them from animals. And when that's forgotten, we should not be surprised that there are atrocities that are committed and people act like animals. God puts us in position under him and with him to relate to him by giving us this spirit, but he puts us in a position as well to love him. Verse 8 of chapter 2. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you all remember that God said, of all of the trees in the garden, you may freely eat, but of this one tree in the midst of the garden, you may not. And in the day you eat of it, we will see in a moment you will surely die. Now, why does God give that to them? Because God made these creatures to relate back to him in a relationship of chosen love. And God gave them this probationary test to see if they would choose to love him or choose to love themselves. We all know the sad choice that our first representatives made. So God puts us in this good place and in this good position. And he puts us in a good partnership. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord 
God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then God goes on after that now, right after that, to say, it's not good that the man be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, it's no accident that immediately after God says, this is what I am giving you to do, he then we then have recorded for us the creation of the female companion to Adam. And here's why. For all of you who are married, all of us who are married, understand that marriage is for service. Marriage is for worship. Marriage is for each to help the other in the process of learning to worship God. And that's why verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But he doesn't do that right away. Verses 19 through and 20 tell us that he first had Adam name all of the animals so that Adam would feel the loneliness that God had already pronounced. And so that then when God, in verse 21, provides this woman, this companion for him, man will see that it's from the hand of a good God giving him this good partnership for this wonderful purpose to serve and to worship God. Those of us in marriage are in marriage to help each other do that. And those of you who are not married, please understand that relationship in general is for the same purpose. That God gave a marriage relationship here, but every relationship is a cure to aloneness and is designed for us to together learn to serve and to worship God. In verse 15, God made clear that the purpose for which I have placed you here and then placed you here together is to worship me. Verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to, it says, work it and take care of it. And the words work it and take care can be and often are translated to serve and to obey. The Lord God put humanity in his world to serve and to obey him. So marriage is for relationship and relationship is for discipleship. So in the biblical worldview, friends, it's about God. And it involves us. It involves we who are privileged. But I say in your outline as well. We are privileged. That's the good news. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We are all the things you saw on the video. But we are sinful. We are sinful. And you will only appreciate the full extent of this if you see and apply and appreciate the first major point in the outline that it's about God. Do you understand that? You won't understand and appreciate the magnitude of what sin has done unless you are focused on the fact that life was designed to be about God. Because sin is cosmic treason against God. And only when sin is seen, not against the backdrop of what sin does to each other. It has horrible consequences on a horizontal plane. But the worst consequence of sin is the consequence that it has on a vertical plane. Between God and man. Life is to be about God and we have committed treason against God. That's what sin is. And so David, King David, after he had committed adultery, after he sought to have it covered up by having 
the woman's husband killed. Many of you know that story. He was then confronted about these awful sins that he had committed. And he wrote Psalm 51 in your Bible in the aftermath of having been confronted. And he finally now is no longer hiding. He confesses. And here's what he says in verse 4. To God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you and against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now think about how many people he had sinned against. But ultimately he sinned against one person in the universe. That's God. So we are involved in the purpose for which the world was made. And we are privileged, but we are sinful. And that sin and its entrance into God's world is given in chapter 3 of the opening book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. And in the very first verse, here's what the Bible tells us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And then I want you to notice these next two words. He said. Now here's why I want you to notice those two words. He said. Because it is the first time in human history that they've heard the voice of anyone other than God. And now they have a foreign voice that speaks something other than truth. He said. And the serpent representing Satan speaks to humanity. Hear this, friends, as we apply this. That voice still speaks through a million megaphones. And God had said in chapter 2 and verse 17, if you follow the voice of the, of the tempter and you eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden that I've told you not to eat from, in that day you will surely die. They lived physically for many years after committing this sin that's recorded in chapter 3. But they died indeed that very moment. Because death in the Bible is separation. Physical death is the immaterial separated from the material, the spirit from the body. But spiritual death is the separation of the individual from God. And they were separated from God. In fact, chapter 3 goes on to tell us that they hid from God when they heard the sound of the Lord God coming in in the garden. And they were separated from each other after God, many of you have read this in chapter 3, asked them about what they have done. The first words out of Adam's mouth are, the woman you gave me. And so these two who were made for each other, made for worship, made to to serve and to, to grow together before God, are now blaming each other. When the woman is questioned, the first words out of her mouth are, the serpent. Blame shifting. And then they are alienated from their environment. Chapter 3 goes on to tell us, That one of the consequences of sin in God's world now is that there is going to be a curse on the environment, the world itself, the earth itself, the ground, and the environment that now we will grow up in. Matt Chandler has said this, after Genesis 3, everything is against us. After the fall, after the entrance of sin, now everything is against us. And the result is distortion of the good world that God has made. Taking what is otherwise good and just giving it a false twist. And that's what happens throughout our existence now. Sin distorts that which is otherwise good. And it's not, friends, hear this now. It's not just that there's some sin and there's some good stuff and they're about 50-50. Sin dominates. 
And it prevails. It always prevails. Think of it this way. If poison is put into an otherwise perfectly good meal, which dominates? The good ingredients or the poison? And the poison of sin dominates then our existence. We look at the beauty of the world and we attribute to God and we rightly attribute the ugliness to ourselves if we are Christians. But the world blames God for the ugliness and it congratulates itself on its achievements. That's how distorted sin makes things. Now, why does God then not just eliminate all evil? Why didn't he just right then decide it's not going to progress, it's not going to go forward? Why didn't he just eliminate all evil? Well, here's one reason that would mean eliminating us. <laughs> and he nearly did do that with the flood that we'll start to look at next, next week. And further, one of the reasons God did not just eliminate evil then is because he desires to show other qualities of his character which could not be seen apart from sin. But sin does necessitate judgment because it violates God's character and failure to punish sin would be contrary to God's character. And when we pick up in chapter 6 next week, we will see God indeed judging sin in a very serious way. It involves us. A biblical worldview. We are privileged. We are sinful. And I say in your outline. We are miserable. We are privileged. We are sinful. And we are miserable. And by that what I mean is. Not only do we personally sin. But we experience the misery of sin around us. And a fallen world. Being in a fallen world. Is not only in what we do. But in what is done to us. And in what we experience. And so a biblical worldview is these three things. It's about God. It involves us. But I say third in your outline. It requires redemption. A biblical view of the world is it was made for God. God made us to be involved in his purposes. He made us marvelously and fearfully and wonderfully. But we are sinful and therefore live in a miserable fallen world. And all of that requires redemption. And failure to see that it's about God will diminish the seriousness of sin. And when we diminish sin, we diminish God's grace in saving us. And right after sin enters God's world and consequences are being pronounced by God on those who have participated in this first sin in verse 15 of chapter 3. Verse 15 of chapter 3, God says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And this human being that's going to come in the future from the seed of the woman, you are going to bruise, uh, bruise his heel, but he is going to, verse 15, crush your head. We know that one to be the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, in chapters 4 and 5, and then the first part of verse 6, we see this cycle of sin and judgment and then God's grace. A cycle that continues through Cain and Abel in chapter 4. Through God's grace, tracing the seed through whom the promised one would come in chapter 5. And then sin and judgment again at the beginning of chapter 6. God says that the thoughts and intents of man's heart were only evil continually. And in verse 8, where we left off, Six months ago. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That in spite of the cycle of sin and judgment, 
God's grace still redeems some from his world. So friends, here's what a biblical worldview involves. It affects your view of God. It affects your view of yourself. It affects your view of others. It affects your view of the entire world. And we were made originally with a proper view of God's world. God, in the opening chapters of his word, gave the first man and the first woman an orientation to his world. And we come into the world after sin, with now the sin nature of our parents, and we are born with a worldview, but not the one that our first parents were originally given. But a distorted view of the world. Disorientation. Here's the great news. Your worldview can be changed. It can be reoriented. We were oriented toward God's world. Sin disorients us toward God's world. But God in his redemption reorients us toward his world. Now, how does he do that? He does that through the fact that the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, has come to crush the head of the serpent, paid the penalty for your sin and my sin, lived the life that the first Adam was supposed to live. The Bible calls him the last Adam or the second Adam. He lived the life that that Adam was supposed to live. And his perfect life and his death on the cross are applied to you when you come to him believing who he is and what he has done. That's the solution to the sin problem. God judges sin in Jesus rather on the cross rather than judging sin in you. We're going to pray in just a bit. You'll have opportunity to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. But you remember at the beginning... I mentioned that book, All I Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. The German theologian Karl Barth traveled from Germany to the United States in 1962, and he gave lectures at several seminaries, after which he would take questions from the audience. It's reported that a student asked him, what's the most momentous discovery of your long theological career? And it's said that Barth replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In that line, Jesus, God, relates, loves me. And how do I know? Because God has revealed himself, God has made him known in the, himself known in the Bible, he tells me so. That's a biblical view of the world. All I need to know I learned in kindergarten. Listen, all you need to know you learned in Sunday school when you learned about Jesus. And so your take-home truth is this. Life is about God pursuing his glory for our good. God is, life is about God pursuing his glory for our good. Now notice I could have said life is about God pursuing his glory and our good. But he pursues his glory, and that's for our good, when we understand that it's all about God. We're going to bow together, and when we do, thank God for giving us his revelation, making us as he has, sending Jesus the God-man to redeem us from our sin. And those of you that do not have a relationship with God, you didn't know about any of that when you came into this room. From your heart to God, you can pray to him. And you can begin a relationship with him today. Realize you're a sinner. Recognize Christ died on the cross for your sin. You repent of your sin. That means I'm going to follow you and go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. Say to him, I'm a sinner.
I believe you died for my sin. I give my life to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the Christ who is central to the story that unfolds in that word. We thank you that for all that is revealed, made known about you in the pages of Scripture and in the person of Jesus. Lord, we have seen that you are great and that you are good. And that in our sin, your character is shown as well. Your holiness in judging sin, but your love in providing the solution for sin in God the Son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to be people who have these handful of truths and we know them cold in all of their implications so that everything that happens and confronts us in life, we filter through the grid of the truth that you've given us in the opening pages of your word. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who came into this room without a relationship with you, that right now your spirit is moving upon their hearts and I ask you to draw them to yourself and cause them to see who they truly are, what they were made to be, what they have become, that sin is cosmic treason against you and only Jesus heals the wound of sin. And Lord, we will praise you and honor you for all you accomplish in Jesus' name. Amen.